This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. Have you ever thought about the kind-hearted souls that volunteer to be church leaders for those incarcerated? How about teaching refugees how to sew and mend clothing? We are going to visit with a nurse that has served vulnerable populations for over two decades. Don't go anywhere. The insights of Dr. Peggy Anderson are coming up next. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together, we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Whether volunteering as a Relief Society president for a women's prison or teaching skills to individuals that recently arrived in the United States, nursing professor Dr. Peggy Anderson has spent her BYU career supporting at-risk groups. She has taught students that compassion and love answer most concerns, from the incarcerated to refugees and even the homeless or those with disabilities. Today, she shares her insights from over 20 years of teaching experience at the university and also talks about her retirement plans. Let's get started. Dr. Peggy Anderson has been an educator at BYU since 2002. During that time, she has led students during the clinical practicum for the public and global health nursing course to support vulnerable and incarcerated populations. We asked her to come on the show today and share some experiences and insight before she retires at the end of this semester. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. We're glad to have you, and it's been so great that you've been a huge part of the BYU community and the education. You've been here for quite some time. Um, Maybe we can just start by, you know, looking over your history with BYU. Not only have you been teaching here for a while, you were also a student here. I mean, you must bleed BYU blue, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So what about BYU or what about the college nursing keeps bringing you back from your undergrad even till today? Good question. I love BYU. I love BYU College of Nursing. Um, I greatly appreciated my education. I think I really started to understand what a wonderful education I had received after I graduated and started to work in the clinical setting. And um, what brought me back was I wanted to be able to give back to, sorry, I'm going to get emotional, the college that had had such an impact on my life. Wow. So tell me more about that, that impact. What type of, what type of impact did the college have on you, Peggy? Well, I think when you, um, enter nursing, you know, it's a lot about how challenging the courses are as you do all the prep and, um, and then becoming a nurse. Right. But eventually all of that work and all of the Education you receive, the experiences that you have, the instructors that teach you, they all become a part of who you actually come. And I've had just some incredible instructors and incredible peers, other students who had a huge impact on um, who I became, who I am today. And so I think that's what brings me back or brought me back was to be able to contribute in that same way, hopefully, to other students and um, my colleagues. 
That's great. Just hearing the way that you talk about your appreciation for BYU makes it very clear that you are very grateful for the experiences that you've had. And I think, and I think we are grateful for what you've given back to the college. You've definitely have paid back in full and then some. Thank you. Can I just say one of the best parts of teaching here has been the opportunity to share your beliefs, your faith, and your spiritual experiences um, as a nurse. Don't always get that opportunity at other um, schools of nursing. Yeah. It's definitely a unique experience here for sure. Do you think there's something that's maybe even also unique about nursing as a profession that makes it potentially a good means to share your beliefs with other people? I think nursing is a good fit for someone who is Christian, who believes in the Savior Jesus Christ. I, um, and I love our theme, uh, you know, the healer's art. Um, part of being a nurse is serving our Heavenly Father's children. And in the most tender and holistic way that you possibly can, in order to meet all of their needs, whether it be physical, psychological, emotional, um, making sure that that you are caring for his children in the same manner that he would. And to me, that is combining my faith with my profession. And I don't know too many other professions that you're able to do that. Yeah. Oh, that's something that I've heard a lot. I myself, I'm not a nursing student, as you know, but uh, I have a lot of respect right. for for nurses, and I've, that respect has grown as I've talked to people like you, Peggy, who um, see their profession as a vehicle for sharing that type of love and um, and that Christ-like love. One of the questions we ask a lot of our guests, and I was planning to ask you at the end, but that just seems like a fitting time to bring it up. How do you think um, working at BYU and studying here has helped you learn the healer's art? What does the healer's art mean to you? Well, it's a deep question. Um, I remember when we first had some discussions about our theme of the healer's art. I know they had been, before I came to the College of Nursing, they had been discussing this. But we really did some in-depth conversations and discussions about what it means to practice the healer's art. And um, I came to the realization, I think, during those meetings that um, when you're practicing the healer's art, um, it, it is wherever you are at. It isn't just a set place. It isn't like a nine-to-five job. It isn't just when I go to the hospital for a shift. It's um, 24-7 that you're practicing the healer's art. It's uh, in the morning when you wake up, you're a nurse. At night when you go to bed, you're a nurse. If your neighbor calls you um, in the middle of the night, you're still a nurse. It's uh, 24-7, and it's an incredible opportunity to to practice that healer's art as the Savior would 24-7. Does that ever get exhausting to you, Peggy? I mean, how have you kind of maybe dealt with that? Because that can be taxing. I think in the beginning, it was a little bit of a culture shock, can I just say, right right off the bat. I don't know as that I totally understood that when I was going through school. Um, I thought perhaps it would be more like a nine-to-five job, even though I know the shifts were different. but just like maybe jobs I'd had before, but it wasn't long after um, graduation that I realized this is a lot more. This is what I dedicate my life to, is caring for my fellow man and improving my knowledge so that I can do that better. 
I love that. That's great. What? So as you are retiring, and you definitely have internalized the theme of practicing the healer's art, what are your plans to continue doing that even after you retire, if there are any? It's maybe not be a fair question. Maybe we need to have you back in a couple of years when you figure it out. But <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? How are you going to do that when you retire? Oh, honestly, been trying to figure out some things, but um, my husband did talk me out of looking for another job. <laughs> <laughs> well, good so, for him. You need a break. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think I will always serve. I think... I have served in a number of different capacities as a nurse, but also as a volunteer in the community in a number of different capacities. And I hope to continue that and even expand on that. Hopefully, um, just multiple different opportunities that you can serve in. I've served with incarcerated populations. Um, I've served children in. Um, learning to read and write. I've done taught sewing um, with refugee groups. There's just a number of different possibilities out there in the community, and I hope to be able to continue that and even do more now that I'm retired. Yeah, I think you're a really great example because so many people like myself, um, as students, as people who are working, we tend to think, oh, you know, I... I'm a good person. I have desires to go serve my community. I have desires to go help people, but I'm going to do that when it's convenient for me. I'm going to do that when I retire. And yet here you are on the cusp of retiring and you've already done more than most people will do in their whole life <laughs> in terms of volunteering for the community. So how have you maybe give some tips to students or, you know, recent graduates on, on what they can do to still volunteer, be active in the community and give back even while they're juggling other responsibilities that they have on their plate? Oh, that's a good question and a good thought because we're all so busy, right? By the time you're working and you're in school and taking classes and you're studying, right? Um, But I think there's always something you can do. Um, I think I really embraced service when I, after I graduated quite honestly. I did some service beforehand and I did it um, when it was convenient, right? But then I realized um, that there were other things I could do. And I would say it just the simple things, just do the simple things, whether it's gathering baby quit, quilts and um, newborn kits and donating them. Um, that's huge. There's... Um, I served for a little while as the Relief Society president out of the prison. And we, we would do some service projects as we taught the women to serve. And I realized the impact, I think, more then than ever before of giving that kind of service. And the importance not only for ourselves in understanding who we are, but for our fellow man. Um, so still to this day, I still, my family helps me, but we do newborn kits at Christmas time, multiple um, newborn kits, and we take them to the road home. And the reason we take them there specifically is because that's where many of the women that I served while I was out at the, the prison, that's where they would be. 
with their families. And so I think even just little teeny things as students count. So whether it's newborn kids or whether it's working with a child, teaching them how to, to read, um, they can always use volunteers in the elementary schools if you have that kind of time. So I think it's just look for opportunities and they will definitely come your way. And usually it will work right within your schedule, quite honestly. Maybe on a, on a practical side of that, how did you get connected with these, with these groups, with these organizations to volunteer? You've mentioned quilting with refugees, volunteering and serving as Relief Society president in uh, the county jail. So what, how, did you, how did you find these opportunities? What do, what do those types of things look like? So some of the opportunities obviously come from our service in our religion, in mm-hmm. our church, right? So Relief Society president out of the prison, that was a calling that was um, extended to me. But other opportunities, I just look for them out in the community. So look for um, groups that are serving. And sometimes it, sometimes when my schedule was really tight, it was, can I give one day every other week um, at the elementary school by my house that's close? And so I just called over and just said, hey, I would love to help kids learn to read, write, or do math, something of that nature. Because all of those things, our education is so empowering, and I think we forget that, how empowering our education is. And it all has an impact on our health and how we perceive ourselves as we grow up and how well we actually take care of ourselves, our own lifestyles. So um, even just going over and calling the elementary school that's close by you and seeing if they need some help. I've never been turned down when I've done that. They've always said, well, we have this program or this program. Sometimes it's been calling the library. A lot of times the library has programs like that. There's libraries close proximity to my home. And so I would call over there and see during the summer, do you have any kind of educational programs that I could volunteer with? So, yeah. That's great. And that's really practical advice, too. I mean, it's actually, it doesn't sound like it's that complicated. You just got to keep an eye open. And then when there seems to be opportunities, you do have to take some initiative, it sounds like. Right. right. And when, at least from your answer, it didn't sound like people were coming in asking you for help. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'd love to. Right. You had to put your foot forward and you had to yeah. show some initiative, but it was well yeah. received, it sounded like. Yeah. Good summary. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> you do have to take that, but um, that first step. But I think once you do, Oh, wow. There's just so many opportunities out there. And it seemed like once I took that step, then other opportunities came my way. And I don't know the Lord would guide them to me or me to them, but I always felt like the hand of the Lord was there. Maybe we can spend some time talking about those opportunities a little bit. And you've mentioned a couple of them, like quilting with the refugees. That's a topic. Um especially with the, with the situation in Ukraine right now, as um, we're getting an influx of refugees. How, what, what did your role with them look like? Why quilting? Of all the ways you could help a refugee person, why did, why did you decide that would be the, the best thing to do? Okay, so one of my great hobbies um, and one of the ways that I handle my stress levels is to sew. Okay, I've done it since I was a little kid. And um, so I've done sewing all the way along and done a lot of volunteering 
that way with humanitarian services. So the LDS Church has a lot of uh, various areas where you can help with humanitarian services, and one way you can help is through sewing. So teaching refugees how to sew actually was through a um, program called Know Your Neighbor. And um, I just called and asked, you know, um, could you use some help? I and they sent me some information. They were looking for seamstresses that could teach uh, the women how to sew. And so we were teaching them very simple things like straight seams and making little bags. Um, so what it was hoping to evolve to, I wasn't in charge of it. I was just one of those women that came and helped sew, right? Um, was helping learn some life, life skills quite honestly, and different ways that maybe you could help care for your family. So. I like that. And if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like your talents kind of guided you in the direction in which you could have been useful. Right. You let your talents kind of take the lead on what types of ways you could help serve. Exactly. But I think it goes back to, too, where you said you had to take that first step, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so throughout the years, it I don't want to get hung up on sewing here, but I've done a lot of volunteer work with sewing. And some of it has been with um, maybe lower income families even, where they specific had specific needs. Um, and my children knew that I had these talents and they would bring people to me and say, uh-huh. can you help? And can you do this or that? And so I've done a lot of um tailoring or even clear up to like making wedding dresses when the um, finances just weren't there to for that for the young woman to have that that type of a wedding dress so wow who did you make wedding dresses for Peggy oh golly I can't count them all (laughs) it's been a lot then (laughs) yeah I've actually done quite a few and um and some of it was, you know, for friends, right? But a lot of it was for perhaps friends or colleagues or individuals that my children knew that were in need. There you, you go. That's impressive. <laughs> Not only have you been working with lots of organizations in a formal way, but I mean, you've even been just a good person all around, um, both inside established organizations, part of an institution that does something for good, and even just in your own life. That's great. That's what it's all about, right? That's oh. the healer's art. <laughs> no, absolutely. Let's let's pivot now. Talk a little bit about um, the state prison and okay. your, your time there as a Relief Society president. You were also um, there over a program called Bedtime Stories. Oh yeah, I yeah. did do bedtime stories. <laughs> okay, so okay, so I was called to be the Relief Society president, um, and this has been a number of years ago, right? Um, for a little branch there, and loved it. Um, I remember when they called me to it, some of the others in other individuals in our ward perhaps saying, aren't you scared? Or, um, but that, I never had any fear, no worries. And as I walked into the prison the very first day, going through all the sets of double doors um, and past all the officers, just having this distinct feeling that I had been prepared, that my education and my experiences in life had uniquely prepared me to serve in this capacity. And it was an incredibly spiritual and wonderful experience. Um, the bedtime stories um, volunteering, 
The program was actually started by a student here at BYU, uh, not a nursing student. I think it was a student from social work who had done some research on um, recidivism and how to help moms stay out of prison that kept returning. And what they found in the research was that the more kind of contact that they had with their kids, the the better they did, huh. right? And so they she started a program um, called Bedtime Stories where we would actually go in and take re- tape recorders and the women would tape stories to their children. Obviously, they all had to be cleared legally in right. order for us to, in order to participate and for us to be able to send those tapes to their children. But I would, I gathered numerous books, children's books, and I would take the tapes and the recorders and, and go in and the women could tape themselves reading stories to their children. And then I was responsible to mail them. So, Wow. I, yeah. I can't imagine what that experience would have been like for mothers to be able to communicate with their children that way. They loved it. They did. And I, this, eventually it became part of the prison, and so they didn't need, need the volunteers the way that we had when we first started it. So not doing that anymore, obviously. But it was an incredible experience, very spiritual again. And it was good, it was good for the moms. Kind yeah. of contact, and the children too. I'm sure, absolutely for the children. So. Yeah, as your time there as a Relief Society president, I mean, you mentioned that you never felt scared and you felt like you were prepared spiritually. Right. I mean, not to push back on that, but I mean, how <laughs> that kind of sounds almost crazy a little bit. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a very wide spectrum of of people in in prison. Some for you know just really in the right. wrong place at the wrong time. The people who are actually dangerous and I'm sure you're working with you know, some of the people who were there for more minor offenses, but right. I mean, th- did your perspective on repentance and change? I mean, I, I imagine that those types of things had shifted, right? Shifted. And your experience at the, at the at the prisons. Tell me about that. That's a really good question. Um, so, yes, definitely my my perspective of the atonement definitely grew, and understanding and appreciation. Quite honestly, I think um, there were many experiences. It was like a missionary experience. There were many experiences where um, you could just see the Lord's hand in in what you were doing in your service and how well, just testimony of how well Heavenly Father knows every single one of us. And I'll, I'll just share a little story. Please. So I... Um, you have to organize your lessons and your schedule as to what you're going to do while you're out at, at the prison um, far in advance, months in advance, right? So as the Relief Society president at presidency, we had decided that for one of our meetings, we were going to teach the women primary children songs uh-huh. and um, so that they would know the same songs that their children Perhaps we're learning. Oh, wow. And so um, we put that on the schedule far in advance. And I remember the night that we were going to teach that to the women. Now, all of the women had to earn the, 
the right to come out to to um, Relief Society, right? So we weren't we didn't have a lot of women, but we we did have those that were able to attend on a regular basis. And I remember on the way out there, um, I had worked all day, right? Been in the clinical setting with students, and then going out to the prison and um, thinking, what on earth was I thinking? This is going to be so boring, and they are going to hate it. And getting there and going in and looking at my counselor and saying, oh, what do we do here now? This is this seemed like such a great idea at the time. And um, I said, let's start with the song, A Child's Prayer. Let's teach them a child's prayer first. And so we um, told the women what we were going to do, and they kind of looked at us like, really, what are we going to do here tonight? And we started to teach them the song, A Child's Prayer. And as we were singing through the song, one of the women started to cry and and actually became uncontrollable. Um, and we kind of got through the song, but by the time we finished, we were all crying because she was crying so much. And so I asked her um, after we finished the song, that really touched you. How can you tell us why? And she... Um, She'd never come out to Relief Society before. It's the first time she'd been able to come. And she said, this last time that I was in jail, I heard a woman singing that song. And I've never prayed or believed in a Heavenly Father, per se. Um, And I heard her singing that song. And I knelt down and said my first prayer. And my first prayer was, Can I someday learn the words to that song? And her very first day coming out to Relief Society, we taught her a child's prayer. What became became our theme song, quite honestly, with that particular group of women. Um, and we they ended up loving all the primary songs so much that we actually did a primary program each year out really? with the women based on what the children were learning in primary. And then we'd, um, we'd create a primary program. My counselor actually would, would pull it all together. So incredible experience, the, the, how music touches you and how Heavenly Father knows exactly what you need and how he answers our prayers. Sometimes we have to wait, but he always answers. I love that. And even in unlikely places, Yes, even in unlikely places, absolutely. And are you musically talented? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) I can pick a few things out on the piano, but that's about it. I love that. Well, even even so, even better. You're you know, you're clearly doing things that you're good at, and you're giving your talents back to the community. And even when you are lacking in talent, you find people to do it for you, or uh, you do it anyways. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, I also understand, Peggy, that you've helped graduate students with domestic violence simulations um, as part of like student empathy projects and things like that. Um, I mean, domestic violence is a really complicated topic, and I mean, it deserves a lot more time than we're going to give it. But what do you think from your experience in those simulations, um, nursing students and listeners to our podcast should be aware about when it comes to domestic violence? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right that it's a really difficult, um, challenging subject, and um, but one that we need to discuss more and be aware of. And um, as parents, we need to be very much aware of what what is taking place in our homes with our children and what we are teaching our children um, about their behaviors and our behaviors towards one another. Um, the, we actually do at the you know intimate partner violence, domestic violence simulation. The students have the opportunity to walk in the shoes of of an actual woman, even though we know that there are men who are abused. Also, the majority of domestic violence, intimate partner partner violence um, situations are uh, involved women, and the students walk in the shoes of, of a case scenario of an actual um, experience of a woman. And then we invite a um, victim's advocate from the police department to come and talk with the students. I try to keep it a spiritual experience, if at all possible, um, it, it is difficult for some of the students. They, um, when you consider the statistics of domestic violence, then you realize that you know one in four women um, have experienced some form of of abuse, and so uh, we try to be very careful about how we approach it. And again, like I said, take a very spiritual approach to it. The, uh, the students love it. They feel like their eyes are really opened. We talk a lot about bias and how to uh, serve those that we, we care for, how to best meet their needs, how to approach um, situations. Obviously, they will learn more when they get out into the field, but at least this opens their eyes to a public health problem that we're seeing in our community and opens their eyes to ways that they can serve even now before they become nurses. So, um, great experience. I like that. It's clearly, it sounds like that simulation is clearly showing that students are growing their empathy, which is a huge part in solving that problem. I imagine is at least at the very first step, developing em- empathy for survivors. Cause there's so much stigma around that topic. That's exactly. really toxic and needs to be taken down. And Peggy, you also, at your time at BYU, you gave a devotional back in, I think it was 2013. Um, when, that's I this, I mean, talk about a lot of pressure, right? Those are pretty uh, widely publicized events. What was your topic? What did you talk about? Well, the title was The Lord Desires Your Success. So, um, and it was based on some experiences that I've had all the way through my life. Um, I related it to the different stages of development and different experiences that I've had and, and how I have grown and improved throughout life. Um, but the title itself was actually based on um, an experience that I'd had out at the prison where, where I was actually given a blessing um, while we were there. And, and in the blessing... I was promised that the Lord desires my success. And I don't usually share that type of 
blessing or that type of experience. But in this case, I felt like it was for others to know as well that the Lord desires our success. He is just out there waiting for us to to move forward and to um, make those changes that we need to in our lives to in order to succeed. And can I just say that doesn't always mean that it's success in the terms of the world, but um, I firmly believe that you can learn from failure, and and I'm one of those people who has. You know, I like that that phrase. Um, the Lord desires your success. I think that's just a very obvious truth, but it gets caked into "God loves you," a phrase that we use much more frequently, right. but we don't always unbake and and take apart all the implications of that phrase. God loves us. God loves me. And that can be, that can be that God desires our success. Right. Right. I, I think we, I agree with you. Sometimes we forget that part. We, we get so bound down in the day-to-day tasks that we forget that he wants us to succeed in whatever we want to succeed in. And, and sometimes it takes years, you know, just maybe on that note, I'll share an experience that I had. Um, when I, finished high school. So this is a long time ago, right? I'm getting old. Um, I, I sat down and I wrote my goals, right? And one of my goals was that I wanted to finish my baccalaureate degree. And I married very young, right out of high school and had, um, and I wasn't able to finish my schooling. I, I finished a couple of years of schooling, did some of my, my, prerequisites for nursing and then I had children and I tried to go back was accepted into nursing school and it was just so much with little kids Um, my children were sick quite a bit and I ended up pulling out of nursing school and then I went back again and I eventually finished my associate degree through a program that BYU College of Nursing no longer has was up in Salt Lake it was a two-year program and I went to work as a nurse and by the time I graduated with my associate degree, I had three children, um, very young. Um, Try and remember, they were six, four, and two. Wow. And then I worked as a nurse for about 15 years, and I, um, my children were a little bit older, and I decided I wanted to go back to school. And so I came down to the Y and talked to them here at the College of Nursing and applied again. In a program that they no longer have, each of these programs, I was like one of the last classes that graduated from the program where they, um, reach for returning RMs, we just no longer have that program for returning RMs, and I finished up my baccalaureate degree. Um, my, so my children were older. My oldest may have even graduated from college by the time I finished. And, and then I went right into a master's program. But I remember taking my children down to my graduation with my baccalaureate degree and because I wanted them to see what you can do in life, even when you don't think you can. And as I walked across the stage to accept my diploma, I remembered that goal that I had set, that someday I would have my baccalaureate degree. And I can bear testimony that I may have forgotten, but the Lord had never forgotten. 
So I'm just so grateful that the Lord does desire our success. He remembers those goals that we set, even when we can't remember them sometimes. I love that. That's a really, that's a really touching story, Peggy. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's a huge takeaway message for all of us is that we may forget our goals and our vision, but uh, God doesn't. And because he desires our success, as long as we keep pushing forward, it might be hard, but we'll, make, we'll find a way to make it work. Absolutely. Well, Peggy, as we're wrapping up here, what are your plans after uh, you retire? You're going to go off, spend some more quality time with your husband. <laughs> he talked you out of another job. Good yes. for him. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's your next chapter in your life look like for you? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I've worked for so long, full time, so many hours a week. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to, what all is going to happen. But um, we would like to go on a mission. So um, as time grows closer, we will look into that a little bit more. We also have each of us, my husband and I each have a parent who is a little bit getting older, right? And so we want to make sure that we're around to help care our parents. Um, I want to do more service in the community, like I had mentioned. And we'll see. I have some ideas. I don't know exactly how it will all unfold, but um, I have always loved working with children, so I'm hoping that that some of that service will involve being a service to children as they learn and grow, um, whether it be through education or, or some other other method and right now that's about it we'll see what happens sounds like your plate's still <laughs> gonna be full Peggy <laughs> I hope so I hope so I like to stay busy I want to feel like I'm of, of service so. well Peggy thank you so much thanks for being on our podcast and also thanks for just spending so much time and sacrificing so much not only for BYU the college community but also uh community at large thank you you probably knew that you could purchase a white clinical jacket from BYUstore.com, but did you know that you can also obtain other items with the college logo? These items include yoga pants, a navy zip jacket, or even fun printed t-shirts. Visit BYUstore.com and search nursing to find these products and more. Our next guest today is Jacob Sheffield. He is the CEO and co-founder of Bloom Surgical, an organization that uses advanced engineering techniques to create products that make surgery safer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, so you actually worked for the College of Nursing as a videographer, and we were proud of you then, but you've since moved on to grander things. Um, I'm sure a lot of our nursing students um, know this, but during a surgery, a laparoscope gets dirty and has to be removed to be cleaned up to five times each hour. And this adds an element of contamination and delayed surgical process. Um, how did you solve this problem? Um, so the way we solved it was we use the area of research that I focused on is something called compliant mechanisms or origami-based engineering and trying to make miniature components as very compact and possible but still being able to deploy out and perform some kind of function. So using that technology, we thought, what if we could have an embedded windshield wiper on the end of these you know, small five millimeter laparoscopes that could deploy out during this operation and clean the lens inside the body rather than trying to have to pull the scope out and clean it manually? Well, and I can imagine just taking it out and putting it back in, it probably doesn't 
stay clean in that process all the time either. Yeah. In fact, there's, there's often a role in, in the OR where there's a surgical tech where his or her primary role becomes to clean the scope during the operation. And so it really becomes this cumbersome process, which can take up to, you know, 10% of a surgery just waiting for the scope to be cleaned while all the other medical personnel are just sitting there checking their newsfeed, checking their social media, um, and then trying to get back into the surgery becomes very disruptive. Can you tell me a little bit more about the device, like what it is? Yeah, absolutely. The components maybe? Yeah, so that what we're developing, so the company Bloom Surgical is working on a technology, this product called LaperVision. And what LaperVision does is it's an origami-inspired device that attaches onto an existing laparoscope. You slide it on, it's a disposable attachment, and it gives the surgeons and the surgical techs the ability to clean the laparoscope from outside the body using this miniature windshield wiper device. And the benefits of it are is right now you have to go during an operation, you go inside the body with the laparoscope and, you know, five times an hour you're having this obstructed vision. And so our device basically tries to remove the the need of removing the scope from the body and trying to reduce that frustration associated with it. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, So you're an engineering grad student. Um, and you won the BYU Student Innovator of the Year Award for this windshield wiper device. Um, you've also won 60 plus awards, more than 60 awards um, for the invention. What does this recognition mean to you? Yeah, so it gets to a point where the recognition only means so much. You can only have so many people say, hey, this is a great idea. It really comes down to, of, is this actually going to work? Um, and that's really what we're, where we're at right now is, you know, the device right now isn't, everything's patented. We're very much in the R and D stage still though, where, you know, there, there's a lot of engineering. So that needs to happen to get it into a safe, reliable product that's actually on the market. Yeah. I bet, um, it'll feel a lot better when you're getting the feedback from actual, you know, surgeons and clinicians about it. Yeah. Um, so you're actually about to graduate for a second time from UIU. Um, what's next for you? Yeah, so the next plan is we are, um, so with Bloom Surgical, we're continuing to operate full-time on it, trying to put all our time and effort into it, not mixing that with classwork, other research work, things like that, and and trying to see, you know, put all of our effort into this single idea, trying to push it as fast as possible um, to get to the point where we can see is actually going to be as viable as we think it can. Everything's looking that way. This is really cool. I've never thought of, I've thought of like, I wear glasses sometimes, and so when it, when I'm wearing glasses and it's raining, it's like, oh, it'd be so nice to have a windshield yeah. wiper, so, but that's what yeah, I thought of. Yeah, so one thing there is um, the, the idea of a windshield wiper isn't necessarily novel, right? Mary Wilson invented the windshield wiper for the car in 1909 or something like that, and it's, it's been around for over 100 years, and so the idea of a windshield wiper, again, that's not the novelty in the solution. The novelty is, is how you're actually t- able to miniaturize a small component and part that can be reliable at this five millimeter scale. That's really interesting. I've also heard that nurses play a really large role in helping medical equipment innovate. Um, can you kind of explain a little bit about that? So as we were validating the technology, we found an interesting pattern where the nurses and the surgical techs actually played a huge role in pushing medical innovation in the OR. And we found that in many cases, the surgeons, you know, are only so aware of certain technology, but the nurses that are in multiple ORs, multiple settings are able to see new technology and introduce it to other surgeons and other hospitals in a way. And so in this scenario, you know, with our, our device, a lot of the feedback we got from the nurses is, 
Although the surgeons are the ones that are, you know, ultimately affected by this problem, the nurses and the surgical techs are the ones that are going to help drive the implementation and the adoption of the product like this because they're the ones that are often encumbered by the steps required to clean the scope. Yeah, so nurses, you guys have the power to to help innovate and make hospitals more efficient. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Rob Brown, the president and CEO of Neonatal Rescue, an organization that is focused on reducing infant mortality in low-resource regions of the world through simple equipment and training. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. It's nice to be with you guys. So I'm sure our nursing students probably already know this, but can you tell me what neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is? Uh, So, I mean, as basic as I can describe it, I mean, they'll probably know a lot more than I do even, but at birth, uh, it's a real critical time where the infant is transitioning from the womb into the world and has to take their their first breath. Um, And it can be really fragile. And there's a large percentage of these infants that struggle to take their first breath. And, you know, anything related to breathing and issues breathing could even be sickness like pneumonia or something would be classified as as respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, You know, we focus heavily on birth asphyxia, which is uh, underneath respiratory distress syndrome in that first breath. How does your organization help solve this type of respiratory issue? So we kind of got started with a neonatologist and he was doing some work, some philanthropy in Ghana. He would travel there some, you know, several times a year to train uh, other neonatologists in the area. And he really saw uh, the problem. Uh, You know, these infants were dying because they didn't have CPAP or ventilation. Um, and RDS here in the States is really a non-issue. If you have the correct training and a few simple tools, uh, like a ventilator, a CPAP, oxygen, uh, you can reduce infant RDS, uh, to the point where it's, you know, not really an issue as far as mortality rate is concerned. And so he came back and he kind of pretty cliche, but he sketched it out on his little yellow notepad on the flight home. Um, decided that, hey, maybe BYU can help me out with this product. And the engineering department, they actually put a capstone project around it. Um, Went out, they bought a fish pond pump, some sprinkler world and home parts and put together a a working prototype. Um, So we looked at that. We said, hey, I think there's like a real project behind this. And the Ballard Center put together a social venture kind of competition, which is where you go in, you see a problem in the world, and then you put together kind of a a company or nonprofit to go out and address that. Me and my partner, Kendall, we founded Neonatal Rescue. We actually took it through that Ballard Center competition, the Y Prize competition, Um, took that kind of working prototype from BYU and really turned it into a full-fledged neonatal ventilator, which also does CPAP, oxygen, high flow therapy but again it's really basic really simple to use because we we actually implement programs so we'll go in we'll partner with a country or uh unicef world vision lds charities and 
you know, we'll give them training, training videos in person for up to two years sometimes to really elevate the um, education in that area. So anyway, that was a long-winded answer. Sorry. No, I love that. Rob, could you kind of explain what an infant ventilator is and how it works? Yeah. So um, the infant ventilator, we call it the Neolife ventilator. Um, and it, as I mentioned, it came out of BYU and we've taken it, we've redesigned it. So it's medical grade components and it's really fit for purpose, right? So during our time at BYU, we actually spent a year in Cambodia and Uganda. We did a lot of formative studies and trying to understand, you know, what would work best? What are the doctors looking for? Um, and we came up with a pretty incredible little device. It's really portable. You know, it's a little bit larger than a shoebox, but it's got an onboard pump, uh, an onboard battery. So, you know, out in Africa, the grids are really dirty. There's power outages at night. and We didn't want the infant who is, you know, critical to be, you know, you know, as soon as the power goes out to be off the ventilator. So we put a 48 hour battery in there that actually kicks on automatically. Um, with the onboard pump, you can do ventilation pretty much anywhere. You can add external oxygen, but the device itself is really simple. It, there's no software. If you want the pressure to go up, there's a knob, you turn that knob and the pressure goes up. If you want the pressure to go down, you turn that knob and the pressure goes down. So that way we could go in and just train people really easily. Um, hey, here's how to use this. And, you know, it's got uh, CPAP, uh, mechanical ventilation and high flow are kind of the three main uh, therapies that we use. And so you can also use that to, you know, treat whatever, you know, whether it's under five pneumonia or RDS or birth asphyxia. So it should, it should treat everything. So you mentioned pneumonia and um, having to solve that issue. Um, what specific needs have occurred during COVID? Yeah, there's been... Uh, you know, at the beginning of COVID, ventilators were in huge need. They still weren't sure what the best way of treating COVID was at that point. And so many people, you know, were in critical need uh, or in critical condition. And so they were putting them on ventilators. So we actually took the technology that we had developed with the infant ventilator. We call it the Neolife ventilator. So we took that tech. We were able to scale it up to an adult version, um, the adult life ventilator, which, you know, has a... 10 times the flow rate and you know it's a much bigger system but it can address covid so we're able to take that through the fda's emergency use process and got that released in the three months during 2020. that's great um it's really cool that you're able to kind of um, solve those issues that came along with covid so i think it's super cool that you and your team are able to help people internationally our students actually have the opportunity to travel to other countries like Ghana and other places around the world to help the people there. Is there a way that our students could be helping spread this message and help with your project? Yeah, no, that, uh, you know, I had no idea you guys were in Ghana and that would be, I think, a fantastic partnership. I mean, you know, just firstly, we're always looking for people that, you know, want to join our different uh, you know, philanthropy trips. We go to Cambodia, we go to Ghana. We're, you know, we're in five different countries in Africa now, six different countries, excuse me. Um, but yeah, depending on, 
you know, I think it'd be great to talk with the students and, you know, we could actually implement a program there and do some different things with the hospitals you're connected into. Um, that'd be just fan- fantastic. You mentioned that you do projects around the world. Is there a way that our nursing students, alumni, um, could get involved in those projects? Yeah, no, 100%. So currently we just have uh, a list of, you know, respiratory therapists and then general nurses even um, that, you know, they can take our training and then we go in, um, you know, we're in six different countries in Africa. So we're always, you know, implementing a new pilot program or training. And so we're always looking for volunteers or uh, people that would like to come with us and, and help there. Could you tell us how our students could find out more? Is there a website that you guys have that they could turn to? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's just neonatalrescue.org. Um, and so you can go on there and you can email us at info at neonatalrescue.org. And we kind of awesome. keep a list of people uh, that are willing to go on these kind of trips with us. And, you know, some sometimes it's an impact trip. Sometimes it's a donor trip. But we're always there training and, you know, in implementing programs and ventilators and stuff. Um, the second way, too, is we have a charity dinner coming up on May 5th. Um, we hope to take some some infant and adult ventilators and put them in really rural Utah communities uh, and Indian reservations. So if you're interested in you know helping local Utah stuff as well, we, we're trying to do that as well. Are people able to make donations through the website? Yeah, there's just a donation button at the top and you know we always have a yearly letter and you can get on our newsletter and see where that donation ends up. But yeah, that's always an option as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rob. Um, It's really cool to hear about how our alum are making differences around the world. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. I loved hearing about all the technological advancements that are coming to the medical and nursing fields, even from our own BYU alumni. It's quite amazing. Yeah, it was really interesting to sit down and talk about the laparoscope like the little wipers on them. It's a really small thing, but I think it can save a ton of time in surgery. I imagine it can even save lives for sure. Yeah, I also really loved Peggy's interview and hearing about her work with vulnerable populations. Yeah, she amazes me, especially as someone who is just now retiring, but yet has done more volunteer and service work than I could ever imagine me doing in my own life. Yeah, um, but I also love the point that she made about how Service opportunities like that are ones that you kind of have to look for. They don't just fall into your lap. I had the opportunity in high school to volunteer to work with some refugees. I didn't even know that was something that needed to be done here in Utah. Um, I had to kind of seek out some needs in the community. Um, So I think it's really important that we keep our eyes open to the needs around us. Yeah, no, that's super true. And it reminds me actually of my own life. When I got back from my mission, I was looking for opportunities to serve. But with COVID, that was kind of difficult. I ended up finding an opportunity to volunteer at my local county health department. And it was actually super difficult to get the opportunity. I had to apply. I had to submit a resume, a letter of recommendation. I had like two or three interviews. But at the end of the day, it was super worth it because it was just a great opportunity for me to grow my own skills while serving the community around me. Yeah, volunteer work is um, extraordinarily rewarding. Even if it's difficult to come by. So keep an eye out. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. Those thanks to Rob and Jacob for joining us on this nursing podcast. They're not nursing professionals, but they're definitely blessing the community. Thank you so much. See you next week. Hey.